Professor Mike McCann discusses Georgia's new college athlete name, image, and likeness bill. This is the Legal Impact Weekly Podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD graduate programs and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at lodge.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host. Do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So, Mike, what is this bill that goes into effect on July 1st in Georgia? So Georgia's joining a group of other states, including Florida, Alabama, New Mexico and Mississippi, where their their states on July 1 will allow college athletes to sign endorsement deals, hire agents, sponsor camps, that type of activity in direct contravention of NCAA rules. NCAA rules forbid colleges from allowing their student athletes to do those things. So it puts the NCAA in a position where their member schools will by force of law have to violate NCAA rules. Georgia's law is a little bit different than the other states because it allows individual colleges within Georgia to require that their athletes on all of their teams share up to 75% of compensation that they get for the use of their name, image, and likeness. So endorsements, social media, influencing deals, things like that, Now, whether schools actually use that remains to be seen. University of Georgia has already signaled it likely won't. And I think some other schools have made the same more or less comment because it it really hurts the school with recruiting, right? If you're a recruit, why would you want to go to a school where you can lose 75% of what uh, you're getting in an endorsement deal? It doesn't help the the star players. So, but we'll see. So that's the, the current landscape. I think we'll see some legal activity before July 1, though. What's that rationale for the uh, for the revenue sharing like that? I guess the rationale is that it provides everyone in the every athlete a chance to get some amount of money that it's more equitable in that regard. I guess the question is, well, what does equitable mean? Because it, it hurts the players that are actually marketable because they're the ones that are having to give up their revenue that gets pooled or shared you know, typically revenue sharing is not something that we do in a workplace, right? We don't say, well, everyone gets paid the same. That's sort of not how our economy works for all sorts of reasons. That's not entirely how this system would work if a school uses it. And it's up to 75%. So a school might say, well, 10% because, because they could say, well, we want the, the tennis players and the, you know, the others that are not necessarily marketable to get something. That would be the, the underlying logic. How does this differ from the compensation sharing that the uh, uh, senators were looking at considering? Yeah, the big difference there is that the federal bill that proposes revenue sharing involves the schools sharing revenue rather than the athletes. So, which, and- which makes a little more sense on the face of it, considering the large volume of income that schools usually generate. Yeah, although the, the flip side is that, that the, the sort of the mechanics of that could, could be pretty profound in terms of how much revenue schools would give up. You know, what does that mean in terms of their funding for other things? But yeah, I mean, you could argue it's, if it's related to the, to school activity, wouldn't it make sense that the school give up the money rather than the athlete who is signing an endorsement deal with some third party, a sneaker company or an apparel company or whatever company wants to pay him or her to influence on social media. I, I think you're right that there's, a stronger nexus between those two things with schools sharing revenue. 
just the you know how that revenue would be shared is sort of a source of of some controversy. Now, the twenty five percent that would go to the students does it go that in theory if they did manage to get any deals does that money go directly to them or is there a little more to it? It remains to be seen. Right now, it would go directly to them. They would likely be independent contractors, so they would probably get paid a fixed amount. And this is something that is is important because some athletes may not realize that they have that they have to pay taxes later. You know, this is it's sort of the uh, it hits you later on type of thing. If you're not an employee, if you're getting all your money up front, you're gonna you're gonna have to pay either quarterly payments or however way they want to do taxes. So yeah, I mean, that, that, the, the thinking is that they would get the money. Now, if they have an agent, then the, the might go to the agent who takes a cut. But generally speaking, it would go directly to the athlete because he or she would be in contract with the third party, not the school. Now, with the NCAA, have they spoken out or are you expecting them to wait until court? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the NCAA has signaled that it supports the concept of name, image, and likeness, but it hasn't actually proposed any specific rules on that front. They, they were expected to do so in January, but they punted and they haven't clarified when they're going to announce any rules. We don't know if it's this summer or this fall, next year, it, it remains unclear. So the NCAA knows that on July 1, five of about five states, maybe more by the time we get there, are going to have laws that directly conflict with NCAA rules. So before then, and I, and I wrote about this in the story, the NCAA could go to court. They could seek restraining orders in each of those states. The argument would be similar to what the NCAA argued in the early 90s when Nevada had passed a statute that, conf- that basically required there be neutral hearings for disciplinary mar- matters of college sports and college coaches. The NCAA said, no, we control that. They went to court and won, and they won because of a couple provisions of the U.S. Constitution. One is the contract clause, uh, Article 1, Section 10, which basically says it's unlawful for a state to interfere with contractual relationships. Here, the argument would be that these states are interfering with the relationship, the membership relationship between the NCAA and these schools. And then there's also a Commerce Clause argument where the argument would be that you know, Georgia's interfering with the commerce of other states by having these rules set up because it forces the NCAA will argue it forces them into an unwinnable position because all of these states have different rules. They can no longer adopt the national standard because every state is coming up with their own thing. There, there are rebuttals to that, but that would be the sort of sketch of a, of a, of a lawsuit and the NCAA would want restraining orders because they want to stop those laws from going into effect. I'm going to assume a lot of people that aren't terribly familiar with college sports would begin to question, like, why do what why would colleges continue to even want to work with the NCAA long term, especially if there's chances for financial gain from money coming in from students, in addition to what they're already able to pull in for sponsorships for the school themselves? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the school and certainly the Southeastern Conference schools that are making a fortune on athletics. They could they could have their own league. Honestly, there's really they don't need the NCAA. Now, the NCAA does provide certain benefits uh, in terms of scheduling, in terms of 
sort of a national set of rules that everyone has to play by. They are marketable in the sense that they have long-term relationships with broadcast companies and sponsors. So they, they have a sort of institution in place that a school wouldn't want to by itself walk away from. I think it would take a group. It would take a conference breaking off. Uh, I would also argue in the NCAA's defense, a lot of schools are not like the Southeastern Conference. A lot of schools don't make that kind of revenue from sports. A lot of schools would argue, uh, although there's debate about how numbers are counted, that they lose money on athletics. Now, whether that captures the benefit to admissions and fundraising can be debated, but at a lot of schools, they're not bringing in massive amounts of revenue through sports. So the NCAA provides a structure for them to rely on. But, but I do think if we ever see a group break off, it would be a conference like the SEC, which, is, which really could be autonomous and function and, and negotiate with broadcasters and have their own TV channel and all that kind of stuff. They're huge. I mean, they online broadcast the whole nine yards. I mean, there, there's a lot of money in that division. Yeah, they're almost like a pro league. And yeah. they could create their own set of amateurism rules that make sense for those schools. And I, I don't, I'm sure that, that that has been thought of, whether or not it ever happens. You know, part of it is that there's inertia, right? That people get used to a certain way of doing things and nobody likes to rock the boat. But they could do their own thing, I think, and probably be very successful. Do you predict the NCAA is going to long term here? This is obviously going to be an ongoing issue, name, image, and likeness when it comes to college athletes. This isn't going to be resolved this year. Do you predict the do you predict the NCAA to start giving at all when it comes to some of this from just because of the volume of states that are beginning to step up and just deciding for themselves? Yeah, I think the, the NCAA wants Congress to resolve the issue, which, of course, is sort of a dangerous, uh, you know, objective. This, you know what this really reminds me of is the social media regulations. It's exactly the same situation where the organization kind of wants control, but ultimately doesn't want to be responsible for the repercussions of whatever side ends up getting decided. Yeah. And, and, and also when you wait for Congress, they do their own thing. So here, yeah. like we talked about earlier, revenue sharing, the NCAA doesn't want revenue sharing. The member schools don't want revenue sharing. If you wait for Congress to come up with a solution, it may not be the solution that you want. It may capture that, but include five other things that you're not interested in. So the, the, the strategy of let's wait to see what Congress does, I think was problematic from the start. We're already in mid-May. These laws go into effect on July 1. None of those NIL bills in Congress has advanced past committee, let alone hearings and floor debate. We don't, we have no idea what President Biden would do. If, I mean, literally, we just, it's, it's sort of looking into tinted windows because this topic hasn't surfaced to that level, right? So it, I think that the clock is ticking and the NCAA, I really think they have two, two options. One is go to court, try to stop these laws from going into effect. The problem with that strategy is you can't lose any of the states. You know, if you lose one of those hearings, the strategy folds. The other is to do what I think they should have done before, which is announce NCAA rules. And yeah, maybe their athletes will go to court and challenge them on antitrust grounds, but so what? You can win antitrust cases if the rules are, are reasonable. So I think that's what they should have done before. I think the strategy of hoping and praying that Congress saves the day uh, 
didn't strike me as a good idea from the beginning, and it doesn't seem to be playing out too well. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.